Okay, why don't we turn together to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 2. The picture that you'll see up there on the screens is where this passage is going to lead us today, to really the horn of plenty that we call the good earth, which of course fits thanksgiving perfectly. And I love that about the verse-by-verse exposition of God's word. He coordinates things according to it. And here we land on the Sunday before Thanksgiving uh, at the very time when we need from Romans to talk about Thanksgiving. Our passage for today will lead us to what he wants us to experience at the, the turkey dinner that we'll soon be enjoying as we go from confession last week, from the really the contrition of a solemn assembly to celebration to literally we're going to see a horn of plenty. But before we dive into our passage for today, I'd like to call your attention to the survey that you'll find in the bulletin or that the ushers handed you as you came in. This is the congregational poll that we've been talking about uh, for a number of weeks now. Uh, We'll be asking you to put them in the baskets by the doors as you leave. And so between now and then, well, let me just say this. There are a few things that I'd ever encourage you to do while I'm preaching, You know, other than listening as though your life depended on it and maybe taking copious notes. But I guess this would be one of the things that you could and should be doing during this sermon. If you haven't already, we really do want to hear from the priesthood about where you are right now when it comes to shifting our focus from the past to the future and on the other questions that you'll find there. So uh, in this one case, if you multitask today, that will be okay. Um, last week we saw how judgmental we can be according to Romans 2, 1 to 4. How so often for us, in our flesh anyway, judgment triumphs over mercy. We saw how we on the Christian right can be so judgmental rather than merciful. In fact, according to Paul in verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, that is our characteristic sin. But in verse 4, we see that God is more merciful than judgmental. In fact, with him, according to James 2.31, with the Lord God Almighty, who is holy, 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 amazingly, with him, James 2.31, mercy triumphs over judgment. Which in many ways is the whole message of the book of Romans. It's the good news, really, of the gospel. Now, we actually experienced this last Sunday. So many of you publicly confessed your sin, and then instantly there was mercy. You encountered God's pardon as in unison we all pronounced his pardon over your confession. If we confess our sins, and you repeated, he is uh, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, you repeated that, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've never seen such a public confession by so many in a solemn assembly. For those of you who weren't here last week, we had allotted 10 minutes to our time of confession. Oh, ye of little faith. And they went on for 45 minutes. It was a a watershed event uh, in the life of this congregation. And it says a lot about your readiness to, to move on. So last week, you might say, we practiced it congregationally, the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. This week, we'll look more deeply at the precedent for this biblically by what God does. As we continue to unpack Romans 2, and we'll focus on verse 4, but to put it in context, 
Let's start in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. You may have heard of Robert Ingersoll. He was the famous atheist of the 19th century, just like Madeline Murray O'Hare was of the 20th century. During one of his lectures, he took out his watch, and he looked at it intently, and he said, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I've said. And then he waited and waited, and of course, nothing happened. Well, the next Sunday, Theodore Parker weighed in from his pulpit. He was a contemporary of Ingersoll, one of the greatest preachers of his day next to Spurgeon. And he stood up there and he said this. He said, did the gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of Almighty God in five minutes? (laughs) Which just about sums it up. That, in a nutshell, is what we'll be talking about today. That God Almighty has, has a very long fuse. It's so long, in fact, he has shown such mercy down through the centuries that saints all through the scripture and all through the years have, on a regular basis, questioned his justice. Last week, we looked at our impatience, our impatience and impertinence, you know, when it comes to judging other people, not just outsiders, but one another when we're in the flesh. This week, we're going to look at the opposite, and that is God's patience and kindness when it comes to judging us. How merciful he is in spite of how judgmental we can be. How full of mercy in the face of our depravity. How so? Well, again, it says in verse 3, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's saying, his point is, heaven knows we've got it coming. We're just asking for it, for him to discipline us, for him to pass judgment on us in the same way that we pass judgment on them, on the pagans that we so love to hate. You know, and even on one another, who we can also so love to hate. We saw last time um, uh, a lot of this. Paul's saying that both sides have it coming, both the irreligious and the religious, both the, 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 um, the hedonist, chapter one, and the moralist, chapter two. They've got it coming, and our nation has it coming in a lot of ways, though he's been very merciful. What Paul's doing here is transitioning to the offensive wrath of God which he goes into in verse 5. But before he tells us what it's like what it, when, once it comes, which we'll look at next year after we take a break from Romans for the Christmas season, before ta- Paul tells us what the offensive wrath of God looks like once it comes, he tells us why it is that it always takes so long to come. It has to do with something that we tend to take all too lightly. 
Something that also exposes our depravity. Again, do you take lightly the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That is, unlike those who are so judgmental, so instantly and mercifully scornful of stuff we see in other people, if we let our flesh get away with it, you cannot exhaust the patience of Almighty God in five minutes. Because he's got a very, very long fuse. And thanks, thank goodness, the offensive wrath of God never comes until mercy has long since triumphed over judgment through the riches of his forbearance and patience. Roman numeral one in your notes. Now, This is a tip of the iceberg verse, one that pretty much sums up the history of God's wrath. First, Roman numeral one, the forbearance and patience that always precedes it. Before God goes on to talk about the wrath, the discipline of God's attack, you might say, in the next verse, when he takes us to the woodshed, Paul tells us about the forbearance and patience that comes before. And in so doing, It's like he's shattering a stereotype. People so stereotype God, especially the God of the Old Testament, that he's a vengeful deity, like with this hair-trigger anger that's so petty and vindictive. And all the rest, when in fact, the opposite is true all through the Old Testament. There are so many examples of this in Scripture, of his forbearance, and patience that precedes his wrath. It's hard to know where even to begin, so maybe we can start right here in Romans 2. Paul's talking to the Pharisees here. He's talking to the moralists of his day, and he was likely prophesying here the destruction of Jerusalem when he said that they were storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's saying, it's coming. Paul knew that Christ had predicted it, that one stone would not be left upon another with the temple, right? But that judgment had yet to come, and it took a long time to come. It didn't happen until 70 A.D. The wrath of his attack came when the Romans sacked the city 40 years later, 40 years after the infamy of the cross of Calvary. It took a lot longer than five minutes. Yes, it was fierce and it was focused when it finally came, but he'd been so uh, forbearing prior to its coming to the point that some wondered whether it would ever come. I mean, here you have God the Father, God himself. He didn't do a thing about it. He didn't lift a finger for the death of our Savior, of his Son, until 40 years later. He let a whole generation go by because the kindness of God leads to repentance. He wanted to give the next generation of Jews a chance to repent for the sins of their fathers. Because you see, the wrath of God's attack never comes until mercy has long since triumphed over judgment. And it can be very frustrating for the prophet types, as I can be sometimes, when he holds off. I've really struggled with that in my flesh. Just looking at America, for instance. And even then, once 
it does happen when the wrath of his attack does come, having patiently waited for them to repent, even once he strikes, he is more than willing at the drop of a hat to relent. History shows that he is easily satisfied, so much so that as Habakkuk said, even in wrath there is mercy. If you appeal to it, it'll be there, even in his wrath. Just read the book of Judges. Judges 3.8, for instance, after years of trying to get them to repent and pulling out all the stops and pleading with them, his wrath finally came, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. That story cycles, as you all know, again and again and again through the book of Judges. His forbearance and patience can be seen in how he treated none other than Ahab, the most wicked of all the kings. In spite of the fact that, as, as it says in 1 Kings 21, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Elijah the prophet said, because you sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon you and I will utterly sweep you away. And it came about that when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring evil in his days. And I'm thinking, I'd never have done that. After all he did? After generations of patience with Sodom and Gomorrah, he would still have spared them if there had been but 10 righteous who would repent. Remember that? As Abraham negotiated with God. You see it over, he, he spared Assyria, the, the, the vicious, most violent people on the face of the earth, the violent terrorist state of Assyria. And Jonah went and prophesied to them and, and, uh, and the king proclaimed a, a fast with sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah got really upset over the gods relenting. And God said, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left as well as many animals. Animals. It's like he has compassion to spare even for animals. As well as many animals. How could I wipe them out? Because he's the Lord, the Lord God. Exodus 34, 6. And here we have the supreme declaration of his character. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, long fuse, and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, which Paul then does go on to talk about. But this week, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin because of the riches of his forbearance and patience. His discipline comes only after a long fuse, a lengthy process of forbearance and patience. He waits for us to repent, and when we do, he's more than willing to relent. Amazing.
We saw in Romans 1 that the wrath of God, uh, we, we learned about the wrath of God's withdrawal. That is, he's like a gentleman. He backs off and says, all right then, have it your way and see where that gets you. And now we see when it comes to the offensive wrath of God, the wrath of his attack, you might say, he's patient almost to the place, for us anyway, of seeming indulgent. Which some of the saints had a real problem with. Like David did when he said, why do you stand far off, O Lord, Psalm 10? Why do the wicked prosper? Your judgments are on high and out of sight. Or Job, why do the wicked still live, continue on, and become very powerful? The rod of God is not on them. Job 21.7. Or maybe like us too. But it's far more than that. It's more than just his forbearance and patience where he withholds the rod of his judgment that we deserve. No, his forbearance and patience are couched, Roman numeral two in your notes, in his kindness. That's literally true if you read this verse, verse four. On either side of forbearance and patience, there's kindness. Paul says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that, and here it is, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The word kindness here means benevolence. It means like extreme generosity. Paul alludes to this back in Romans 1.20 where he says that all men have seen something of the invisible God and that is his eternal power and they've seen something about his divine nature. And the next verse, verse 21, Paul makes it clear that he's talking about his generous nature because he says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or even give Thanks. What kind of glory in particular uh, do we owe him more than anything else? Well, what Paul's teaching here and what we see throughout the scripture is that the kindergarten of giving him glory is just being thankful. It's what we most owe him. And so the most frequent phrase of praise in scripture is give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. He is so good to us. Which of course is what Thanksgiving is all about. And why we rightly devote a day a year to this kindergarten of our response to him. Because more than anything else, it's an attitude of gratitude, Paul's saying here in Romans 1, that we owe him. Giving him glory for the plentitude of of his generosity. And yet so often people are like the dwarves. I don't know if you remember the dwarves in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, The last battle is over. The dwarves have been freed from this horrible prison and yet they refused to believe it. They were out in broad daylight but they thought they were still in prison as is the case with all those who don't give thanks. The little things become everything, and then there's nothing right with the world. It goes like this. Lucy led the way, and soon they could all see the dwarves. They had a very odd look. They weren't strolling about or enjoying themselves, though the cords with which they had been tied seemed to have vanished. Nor were they lying down and having uh, a rest. In broad daylight, they were sitting very close to one another in a little circle and facing each other. 
they never looked round or took any notice of the humans till Lucy and Tyrion were almost near enough to touch them. Then the dwarves all cocked their heads as if they couldn't see anything, but were listening hard and trying to guess by the sound what was happening. Look out, said one of them in a surly voice. Mind where you're going. Don't walk into our faces. All right, said Eustace indignantly. We're not blind. We've got eyes in our heads. They must be darn good ones if you can see in here, said the same dwarf whose name was Diggle. In where, asked Edmund. Why, you bonehead, in here, of course, said Diggle, in this pitch-black, pokey, smelly little hole of a stable. Are you blind, said Tyrion? Ain't we all blind in the dark, said Diggle? But it isn't dark, you stupid dwarves, said Lucy. Can't you see? Look up, look around. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? How in the name of all humbug can I see what ain't there? How can I see you any more than I can see me in this pitch darkness? But I can see you. I'll prove I can see you. You got a pipe in your mouth. Anyone that knows the smell of tobacco could tell that, said Diggle. Oh, the poor thing, said Lucy. This is dreadful. Aslan, she said through her tears, could you, will you do something for these poor dwarves? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees, pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he had been trying to eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of old turnip, and a third said he had found a raw cabbage leaf. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. Their prison is in their own ungrateful minds, yet they are in that prison. What should they have seen since the creation of the world According to Paul, what should we see? That the whole world is a horn of plenty in which loving gratitude is the kindergarten of our duty to him. It's all over the place in Scripture. In Acts 14, Paul pictures exactly what he means here in Romans 1. What should they have given thanks for according to Romans 1? Well, in Acts 14, he's talking to the very people that he's talking about in Romans 1. He tells them, just look around you. Look at the creation and you'll see that God did not leave himself without a witness. Acts 14, 16. And what is that witness? Then that he did you good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. There it is. That's the kindness that his forbearance and patience is couched in. It means that the fuse is not only lengthy, No, it's a long and winding fuse that's moving ever so slowly through a horn of plenty. In James 1.17, it says, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming from the Father. 
In 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says he richly supplies us with everything to enjoy. In 1 Timothy 4.3, he says everything created by God is good, and we're to share in everything, kindergarten, gratefully. Because this good earth, this wonderful life, the whole world is a cornucopia, a horn of plenty, full of good things that are pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured out into our laps. And like any father, he he loves it when we enjoy them gratefully, when we enjoy them as we turn from the gift to thank the giver. Which we'll be doing today, not coincidentally, at our turkey dinner. (laughs) And he loves it especially when we enjoy it not just gratefully, but generously. Just as he's been so generous to us which we'll also be doing today as we do each year. We'll be taking contributions for Lago Vista, for Room for Hope, for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and for local benevolence needs. So let's give generously as we enjoy the feast gratefully. And by the way, all the money that was raised by the youth during (coughs) last year's turkey dinner will be given back to the youth who raised it. It's being made available for their missions trips this year and in the years to come, whether or not they continue to attend here. This was Sessions' initiative, and it was their unanimous decision, and I was there when they made it. It was like for them, it it was a no-brainer. It's part of much else that our elders want to do and are doing behind the scenes as men who are taking their calling seriously, not just to be overseers, but shepherds. Um wherever the flock may be. Let me close with this. You might say that Aslan breathed on us last week in this very room. He breathed on us a spirit of conviction. And this week, well, this week he is shaking his mane over in the hall of faith. And a glorious feast is going to appear thanks to the many hands that helped. Because there's a time to mourn, and there was a time to mourn. But there's also a time to, what does Solomon say? Dance. Now, don't get too carried away. (laughs) But there is a time to dance. And he wants to see us enjoy ourselves over there gratefully and generously, especially this year. After all that he's done since last year to bring us to where we are, it's time to turn the corner from confession to celebration. First on Thanksgiving Sunday and then on the first Sunday of Advent, which will be next Sunday, when we're going to begin celebrating the greatest gift of all. Amen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness endures forever. Amen.